Welcome to the Green Majority on CIUT 89.5 FM, the sound of your city, or on one of our appreciated radio syndicate partners or on the Green Majority podcast. As the United States government continues to demonize and attempt to liquidate undesirable bodies and troublesome opinions, repurpose public resources for the exclusive use of the oligarchic class, and try to spark a race war in its streets as white mobs are being emboldened towards lynchings, people are driving their cars into Black Lives Matter protesters, and people are being tortured and killed in immigrant concentration camps. It's important to be profoundly grateful that the good earth is still producing for us everything we need, even though we treat it so terribly, and its condition seems to get worse by the month, as our politicians and business leaders continue to behave as though we didn't have clear evidence that the good earth will destroy us if we fail to change our ways. It's also important to remember that all our futures are interlinked, and that we do have victories, and that fossil fuels are indeed slowly on their way out, but it's a matter of whether we will get rid of them fast enough, and if, we can, and if we'll fall into worldwide authoritarian brutality in the meantime. Today we're going to discuss three pipelines that have been defeated or set back, and one pipeline that has been given another boost, uh, before we then play a um, uh, sound art piece that we put together about climate change and societal ambition. We played it back in January at the turn of the decade, but we're going to play it again because we failed to upload it properly for our other radio partners at the time. And we're now going to move into the oh-so-happy days of pipeline defeat. And beginning with uh, Keystone XL. So the Alberta premier, Jason Kenney, a man who never completed his undergraduate philosophy degree at a Jesuit college, is arguing that in order for Canada to continue functioning as a North American economy, we simply have to build pipelines. Kenny is continuing to blame a shadowy and nefarious cabal of green lefties funded by American foundations for his energy woes, as the U.S. Supreme Court has now handed the Keystone XL project another setback just after Kenny invested $7.5 billion in the pipeline. The decision narrows the scope of an April ruling that threatened over 70 oil projects across the U.S. to the Keystone project alone. That April ruling called into question the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers' permitting program that grants energy projects the legal right to cross bodies of water. So a ruling that could have affected a whole bunch of projects is now affecting only one. And TC Energy, the builders of Keystone XL, will have to look for new permits which could take over a year to procure. And in the meantime, they're continuing construction in Canada for the pipeline that's supposed to run 1,900 kilometers from Hardesty, Alberta, to Steel City, Nebraska, where the crude will then hook up with existing infrastructure that would run it to the Gulf Coast. The Calgary Herald quotes Greenpeace strategist Keith Stewart as citing this as an example that pipelines in the U.S. are just as contentious as they are in Canada, and the same article quotes energy, indus- energy industry strategist Christine Tezak as saying, quote, 
if federal agencies don't dot their I's and cross their T's and do a good job on permitting, the opposition to those permits is becoming increasingly successful on judicial review. The opposition has gotten more sophisticated. They're bringing better cases, and they're winning, and they have been successful across a variety of venues. Yeah, so to start, I think it's important to draw the connection between the ne- this story and the next two, which is that what we're seeing in these fights, and the, and the, and the through point, the connection point between all three, is that all three of these pipelines, uh, so that's Keystone XL, the Dakota Access Pipeline, and the Atlantic Coast Pipeline, all faced significant pressure from indigenous groups that 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 was going through the territory, and all sort of faced this fight. And so, one of the important pieces here is is the success of uh, indigenous groups as actually being able to to push back and and to win these fights. And and that is a through point between all three of these stories. I have some other notes, but but to you, Lauren. Yeah, yeah, definitely would like to echo what you noted about the success of indigenous groups pushing back and, and maybe I'll, I'll touch on that later. I definitely have like a little mini rant that I had, I'd written up at some point, but no, I think honestly, my big takeaway whenever it comes to talking about Keystone XL and Kenny's like relentless pushing for it is I, I don't know. I'm sort of, I'm stuck and I'm so confused by his continued public insistence that this project is going to happen and that it's going to be successful and that it's worthy of expending political capital on. And then I sort of realized when I was sitting here right now, and and again, maybe this is something that's really obvious to other people. I almost don't wonder if Kenny knows that this project is dead in the water, but he's still better off spending the money on it and publicly trying to save face and demonstrate that he is making an effort with this pipeline to the people of Alberta because that citizenry has become, at least a, a, a portion of that citizenry has become so determined that the success of the oil and gas industry is is absolutely one hundred percent necessary, and anything other than it isn't like an act, isn't like a viable alternative. So it's like I'm, I don't know. I'm sort of starting to wonder if maybe he realizes that this is a totally futile effort, but it's actually somehow better in his political calculus that they spend astronomical amounts of money on a project, even if they know it's never going to go through because politically it's better for him to do that yeah. than it is to, 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 to throw up his hands and admit to his public that that's not going to happen for them. Yeah. It, it's interesting. You, you note that because I remember in 2008, what I think it was my first environmental studies course and, or maybe I was, maybe it was one year later, maybe it was 2009. I think it was, environment and energy or energy policy or environment and policy, of course. And our professor asked the question to the group, who thinks Obama is going to approve the Keystone XL pipeline? And unanimously, everyone thought that this was going through. Like we were all already defeated in our, you know, and our youthful optimism had already decided that this thing was definitely going to get built. And that was 12, maybe at minimum 10 years ago, if not more. And, and we're to a point now where there's 7.5 billion dollars that has been that has been either loaned or moved in this project by the by the Alberta government. And it's important to note that Biden has already said that if he's elected, he will cancel this project. Which means that 
you're basically saying that you're betting $7.5 billion. Now, I imagine they'll get some of that back because they won't spend it trying building it. I don't know. But but still, you're still putting $7.5 million on the line on a project that is basically a bet that Donald Trump is going to win the election. And that's quite the bet. No, it is. It's the weirdest political gamble because, I, like, I mean, I'm, I'm not 100% convinced that Biden's going to gonna sort of triumph over Trump here. But, I mean, like... I don't know. Trump's approval ratings really aren't that solid. It's, it's again, it's a weird political gamble to make. But again, again, I'm thinking, I think what it comes down to is it's, it's better to lose $7 billion of taxpayer dollars than it is to admit to the public that's adamant that this pipeline go through and that their industry be saved, that he can't do that for them. It's better to say, hey, I tried, guys. It's not my fault. Blame the lefties. Blame Biden, blame Trudeau, blame climate justice Edmonton or whatever, yeah. then, then admit that there was nothing he could do and that it's a dying industry and that really the best thing for Alberta is to pivot and pivot hard to new industries. Yeah, yeah. He's, I think you're right. I think that is almost, unqu- that has to be the calculus. Either that or he's the kind, you know, he's the captain of the Titanic who has decided that he has not struck a, uh, an iceberg and is like, no, we're going to still make it to America. Here we go. Yeah, no, and, and frankly, I don't think Kenny's that stupid. Yeah. Like, I don't like him, but I don't think he's unintelligent. To me, to, 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 to think anything other than this particular pipeline is going to fail is just, um, isn't, isn't reading the room effectively yeah well and especially well, like in this th- this this move to now delay it by another year and a half basically means that it will not even begin construction in those areas you know before before theoretically the next president is is around again if 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 biden wins and as a, this is a side point but i just want to like throw it in there because i think it actually because i as i was reading this i i it tinged in my brain which is like it's always important to note that how often energy companies and pipeline companies will change their names to like once one gets soured like tc energy is trans canada and in trans canada had its you know had its name i guess its brand was was slowly soured over the years of trying to push this thing through and so suddenly to 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 advance itself up again it goes tc energy and and now it's and now it's now it's a whole new now it's an energy company right it, it changes its whole face of it you know same way in the same way that after the the Gulf oil spill BP became beyond petroleum for the eight minutes that it decided to pretend it wasn't just an oil company and and so as a, as a heads up if you see TC Energy just know that it's still Trans Canada it's just a name change there's nothing else going on there yeah it's literally just smoke and mirrors well yeah. not literally obviously I should. <laughs> Yeah. But anyway, yeah, no, there's something interesting to be said there for sure for that reinvention for that rebranding. And I mean, like, God knows they have the money to endlessly rebrand. Um, yeah, I'd be I, I, someone I hope maybe I'll look into this if there's like a listing of all the numbers of times that these different energy companies have changed names as ways to like, allow themselves to pretend they're somehow different and not the last name brand that that's gone dragged through the mud. Well, I mean, if we go back into a second wave of COVID, that sounds like a solid second wave project. I, I like the sound of that. Um, uh, speaking of second waves, the second uh, pipeline that had uh, bad news this week. The fiercely contested Dakota Access Pipeline, 
has now been ordered to be shut off for 30 days pending an environmental review of the project after a U.S. District Court judge ruled that the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers gave the project a permit without doing much environmental assessment. The decision has been happily received by the indigenous activists who famously fought the project at Standing Rock in 2016, but the activists have, of of course, always known that the pipeline was being constructed illegally, since, as LaDonna Brave Bull Allard, who started the resistance camp four years ago, put it on Democracy Now!, quote, The law says that you protect sacred sites, burial sites, traditional cultural properties. You do an environmental assessment, an EIS, according to the law. And I just assumed that they would follow the law. This is the first federal agency, corporation, that I worked with that did not follow no law. And so it was kind of shocking for me to be dealing with vast corruption. The resistance at Standing Rock of course, began after the pipeline was rerouted away from white settler land and into the indigenous Standing Standing Rock Indian Reservation, and the resistance was met with vicious private security attack dogs, water cannons in freezing temperatures, arson, and police infiltration, and all that suffering is now bearing some positive fruit. There will, of course, be appeals by the pipeline's owners, but it's possible that the pipeline could end up being shut down entirely for years as a new environmental review takes place, and the decision is a major victory for the Standing Rock Sioux Tribe and the countless other indigenous nations that gathered in numbers reaching over 10,000 at Standing Rock to fight the project and protest the ongoing theft of native land and the way our society is totally wrecking the environment. So this is a slightly uh, tangent, but I think it's important to note just so people can understand the the risks that 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 was were taken in, during Standing Rock is if you look into and we covered this I think a year or two ago now if you look into the sentencing that was done on the Standing Rock activists they were given there are some who are still in jail and who'll be in jail for the next ten years because of how unreasonably they were they the, the the court system was used against them they were they were threatened with basically facing all white juries uh, that would be in, in no way appreciative of their of their cause and so they were basically pressured into these plea deals some of which were you know were 10 you know 10 15 years long and and some of them were some of the stories are incredibly messed up like if, if you remember some of the stories about you know there was one one activist who I believe was charged with having firing a weapon but the weapon was actually belonged to an FBI FBI agent who had infiltrated the the camp itself the, the like there's there's all these stories of these of these of these ways that these activists were you know quite simply persecuted and and thrown in jail for for the audacity to stand up to this energy company and so we cannot forget the sacrifice that was put in by these people to to do this this also goes back to the to the previous story in which at near the end of it there was talk, talking about the increasingly effective use of courts by indigenous resistors and by environmental activists and and I think that what we're seeing here is 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 the is that uh, complexity understanding coming up against I think in some ways the energy industry or especially this pipeline industry's seemingly inability to follow regulation you know, you would just have like these courts aren't activist courts that are co- doing this. They're being put in a scenario where they're being forced, basically, to to rule that they are not following the law because they are not because the you know the Trump government or the energy companies pushing these forwards simply didn't do the work. 
and and that's that's incredible to me just you know just the fact that like that all you would have to do is do it properly and then then there's that lowest bar is simply not being met but but to you lauren yeah i don't think i i have much to add honestly that that was that was fantastic but i i think what i do want to emphasize here is yes all of the court actions have been incredibly effective and it's really really good to see that so much is coming from that from those legal tactics and they're increasing use in recent years um but i think we we do also need to acknowledge the fact that the um sort of the standoff at standing rock did so much to catapult dapple into sort of like social conscious and the discourse and conversations around sort of social legitimacy and license when it comes to extractivism and pipelines um because i think up until then a lot of what we'd seen sort of in terms of anti-pipeline action was like and and this isn't any knock to 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 settler activists i am one but like was was like jane fonda and bill mckibben getting uh like handcuffed outside of the white house or whatever which is definitely it's powerful imagery those are trusted figures but it doesn't necessarily like um it it doesn't have the same effectiveness in the sense that it doesn't demonstrate the grotesque injustice um of of these industries whereas the standoff standoff that happened at standing rock and all of the fallout from it and all of those arrests that were made and and that sort of that really sort of iconic footage now um of those attack dogs that were captured by um the team at democracy now i think really really was effective at showing sort of the the modern day warfare that is carried out on these sites and around these projects um so although the legal battles are maybe maybe that's where the fight is won but there's so much work that has been done over the last 10 years probably to sort of uh lead up to those battles and make them effective and sort of lay the groundwork for them to to yeah to to be one, I guess. Sorry, that was an odd way of phrasing things, but I hope that makes sense. No, it does, and I and I think to to just hammer one point home, I think that that's important. There is, it is actually, I think, so much more dangerous to be on the land where the fight is happening in these energy projects, you know, than going to the White House. We, as we saw, the amount of force that they were willing to to unleash on, on the indigenous protesters of that land is astronomically more. Than, than any of the White House protesters, uh, you know, faced. Oh, yeah. absolutely. And, and I mean, like, we, we, and I, like, you know, I know, we all know that, like, that's not coincidental. That's yeah. not necessarily just because it happened to be in Dakota and the cops are meaner in Dakota than they are in, oh. <laughs> in D.C. It's entirely because of the types of people who are oh, yeah. on site at Standing Rock and the types of people who are on site in Washington. Yeah. Well, if you need if you need an example of of exact of that exact point, just look at the the, the armed militia that to, that took over what was it like a, a an outpost somewhere and end up having like Americans Republicans sending them food as they basically took over a federal building because they didn't agree with ranching laws, I think it was. And ultimately they were just like escorted out and that was the end of it, you know, like and, 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 and like this was, they were all armed. They, and they're all, you know, they're all sitting around being fine comparing to this. So like, it's definitely not, it's definitely not the, just the fact that rural cops are worse. That's for sure. But let's, let's move on to the, to the third uh, pipeline. 
So the companies behind the Atlantic Coast Pipeline that was set to go through the Virginias and into North Carolina under the Appalachian Trail have abandoned their project after intense opposition from a coalition of diverse activists which included property rights people, black Baptists, and indigenous communities. Even though the U.S. Supreme Court ruled in the pipeline's favor in June, the companies backed away from the project because of other rulings, like the one against Keystone XL, and the skyrocketing costs of the project caused by the opposition. Aaron Cox and Gregory S. Schneider point out for the Washington Post that all this is happening even as Trump has changed so many environmental laws in order to make it easier to build such projects, and they write that the company's officials stated that, quote, the legal challenges made it impossible to reliably calculate whether Atlantic Coast Pipeline construction could continue this year or how far it would be pushed into the horizon. This one's interesting because it's not a court victory. But, well, a court victory is, is included in it, and the, and the battles in the courts are mentioned. But it's actually more similar to the, the, the tech mine in Alberta, where basically the, the company itself decided it was no longer worth it. And, and pulled out because of the price increase. They, I think the price was going to increase from $5 billion to $8 billion, and they decided that, that was, was, against the, was no longer economically viable, which, which I think is an important addition uh, to understand that that's another pressure that all these things are facing as well. Uh, but, but to you, Lauren. Yeah. Um, in all honesty, if I'm, if I'm being truthful here, this is a pipeline and this is a project that I'm not incredibly well versed in. It's not actually one that I, that I'd heard about a lot in recent years. Um, I was sort of peripherally aware of it, but it wasn't one of the big battles that I was, I was super um, knowledgeable on. And I think what we're seeing here with sort of the combination of, like you said, the court battle and um, the company basically just like pulling out and being like, Hey guys, this isn't going to be going to be profitable for us in the long run. I think it's projects like this that really demonstrate that the cumulative work of the supply side movement has been so successful over the last 10 or 15 years because it's projects like this where like, yes, there were people working acutely on it, but but it, it wasn't a DAPL. It wasn't a Keystone XL. It wasn't a TransCanada Kinder Morgan pipeline, um, but it's nonetheless still being canceled. Um, that demonstrates, I think, I think that big sea change um, is actually something that we're starting to see. And we, and we really are starting to see sort of, I mean, like through a combination of market forces and just the sheer inevitability in the face of climate change and the amazing actions that people have been taking over the last decade and decade and a half that like, we really are seeing the end of the fossil fuel industry here. And in my mind, it's almost, it's like, it's like the death of Godzilla. Like it's, it's <laughs> happening. It's been, it's taken forever. It's going to be messy. There's going to be casualties and it's not going to be pretty and easy and quick and clean. But like, I think it's hearing about the cancellation of projects like this, that demonstrate that like the effectiveness of that supply side campaigning over the last little while. Yeah. And, and this one also was a gas pipeline too. And the only other thing I have on this, because I, I like you, Lauren, I'm not super well read in this on this, is that in the article that that was cited, there's a one of the people who comes out uh, dismayed by this is uh, Joe Manchin the third, who is the Democratic uh, senator from West Virginia, who is 
probably responsible for a lot of the reasons that Obama did not do as much as people hoped on climate change. Uh, because he was sort of the swing vote that is basically a Republican who just happens to you know have a D beside his name and can win West Virginia. And the Democrats, I think, have to find a way to ensure that his vote does not cannot be the swing vote in the Senate. Like he can't be the one who's deciding what what goes down in if there is a Biden presidency um, or even if there isn't really like he's not a reliable person and is so deeply invested still in the coal industry uh, of West Virginia that that they have to find a way to make him not be a swing vote of power, despite the fact that he, I believe, is the ranking member of the Democrats in the energy you know, committee right now. But let's go to the, I guess, the more sobering pipeline news. So the Canadian Supreme Court has rejected an application from the three First Nations to challenge a federal court of appeal decision on indigenous consultation uh, in, as involves the Trans Mountain Pipeline Expansion Project. The First Nations, Squamish, Tsleil-Waututh, and Coldwater, argued that the federal government did not conduct meaningful consultations and accommodations with indigenous peoples. The, li- the pipeline was, of course, successfully legally halted in 2018, even though constructed was, construction was allowed to illegally continue. After a second round of indigenous consultations, the federal government then reapproved its own project, and it was the challenge to this second approval that was now struck down, and as such was brought to the Supreme Court. Chris Lewis, a spokesperson for the Squamish, uh, observed that the decision shows, quote, that consultation and accommodation and reconciliation with indigenous peoples is not a matter of national interest. Uh, So as uh, Canadian carbon emissions are soaring ever higher, it's uh, worth wondering what our national interests actually are. Jason Kenney hailed the decision as a win for Albertans. Uh, Though the pipeline will never likely be profitable, Kenny seems to believe that a few thousand temporary construction jobs are worth the $17 billion price tag, which includes a projected cost of construction that has risen from $4.5 billion to $12.6 billion, as well as the original $4.5 billion that the federal government spent to buy the project from Kinder Morgan after they threatened to bail because of potential legal delays. Uh, Barring extremely volatile oil prices, as well as liabilities for the cleanup costs of inevitable oil spills, which was capped at $1.3 billion per spill, the project is still only projected to make $500 million a year, meaning profits will not materialize for 30 years. As no doubt the Supreme Court is capable of basic math, they must understand that using the profits from the Trans Mountain Pipeline expansion to fund clean energy projects is not a viable strategy to mitigate climate change. The thing I can't get over is the fact that the Canadian government owns this pipeline. And I still cannot figure out like, I understand that the Supreme Court is technically separate. It's a different body. But at the same point, this is still the same entity deciding whether or not it should be in, you know, blocking its, uh, another arm of the same entity to, to be able to move forward on these things. And, and this, to me, just strikes me as, a, as an inherent failing of the, Canadian, of the Canadian federal government owning a pipeline. 
is that I don't understand how you could ever believe that any of the actual full-on agreements that are coming through here could be, you know, not not affected by that, I guess. But but to you, Lauren. Yeah, I mean, this story is a bummer. And it's not even necessarily a bummer because I think it means the pipeline is going to get built. I'm actually, I'm, I'm fairly confident that it's not. Um, it, it, for instance, like, I mean, like we know that like they're, they're even having trouble getting insured anymore. They've had a couple insurers drop in the last couple of weeks. Um, like if, if Zurich insurance, who's their biggest insurer is, is up to like make a decision then in the next couple of weeks as well. And if they drop, then, then they're out of insurer. Um, then then they're almost entirely out of insurance companies. So it's like this pipeline is plagued by so many issues and so many different stages and it's so many in so many different ways that this story is depressing again, not because I, I think the pipeline's gonna get built. I don't think it will, but but for exactly the point that you raised, um, Stefan, it's it's that it's indicative, I think, of a deeper sickness within the Canadian governing system. Um, you can see it at the provincial level, you can see it at the federal level, just this idea um, and this insistence that oil and gas exploitation is so deeply embedded within like our governing systems and within our culture that even governments who claim to be relatively progressive, like the liberals, who claim to care about and prioritize indigenous rights, indigenous land land ownership and land rights and and the quote unquote environment and climate change still can't get out from under this idea that the best thing for Canadians is another pipeline and is blowing billions of dollars on a pipeline that like you said isn't even going to be profitable but the idea that that they don't care about that that because it's it's almost just like embedded in our culture and in our DNA um and that's why this story is a bummer because it's like, are we really looking at American political systems this week and American courts and saying they're better than ours right now? Yeah. Because yeah, that's what bums me out. The fact yeah. that we are, that we hold ourselves to such a high moral standard and we so utterly fail when it comes to stories like this. Yeah. And I, the thing I will keep saying and that we will keep saying, I think until Depressingly, I think either until the you know the bottom drops out, which I guess it already has multiple times, um, or we or there's the the conventional wisdom just shifts, is that more and more and more the Canadian government is 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 the is the thing propping up the the oil industry in Canada more and more and more the Canadian government Canadian pensions can uh, uh, Canadian money in, hun- in ways that you wouldn't even imagine are, are are being are being brought into the realm of oil and gas to the extent where you know the when the world accepts that that these are stranded assets we are the ones going to be left holding the bag and and that is going to be very bad you know, if, if anything is going to stop us from being a, the what they've said off the top in the first story, I think a a North American economy that you know whatever that means with, by Kenny, the it's going to be when we no longer when when we are holding a bunch of pipelines and spent mil, billions of dollars for all these tubes underground that that have nothing to ship, like that's going to be the the problem. Yeah, and and I think. And, and maybe this is just me grasping at straws and, and building a narrative where there isn't much of one, but I feel like Canada's recent rejection for like the third time or something from the UN Security Council um, is sort of indicative of the fact that the rest of the world knows this, 
or at least the rest of the like, I don't know, the rest of the world that we often tend to look to and laud. Like, I mean, like those European, Scandinavian countries that seem to have all their sh um, their stuff together. Like, I don't know, their 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 rejection of us recently and, and citing our pipeline politics and, and our oil and gas politics as a reason tells me that they know that, tells me that they know that Canada is kind of screwing itself over here because we cling so deeply to this weird sort of, uh, I don't know, uh, a narrative we've woven for ourselves over the last several hundred years about resource extraction and how it's so deeply embedded in our fiber as a nation. Um, yeah, and I think if there's a through line uh, of this, of the past, you know, I was going to say a year, but I think you can go way further back than that. It is it is the experience that uh, it is of the of the international world uh, sort of repeating what is being consistently said, uh, you know, by indigenous uh, populations of Canada as well as uh, you know BIPOC communities in Canada of just basically that the settler narrative of Canada is a lie. Right. And that in that how the settler nation of Canada sees itself is not how, you know, the, the international community sees us, nor how the, the citizens of Canada uh, or, or the you know citizens is a exclusionary term. But the people living here experience this lie. And there's a reckoning there that I think is going to come through, not just through oil, but culturally that that we that will so desperately needed and will leave in its wake a, a space for a new Canada to hopefully or a new you know, so-called Canada or whatever this nation we even call it, uh, to to redefine itself or maybe the first time define itself in a way that is actually, you know, accepts what it really is. I think that's absolutely right. And I mean, like, not to sound trite, but if it's if it's any indication that you are correct, I don't know a single person who celebrated Canada Day this year. Right. There is not a whole lot of patriotism in this country right now, at least not amongst my peers. And I understand that my peers aren't necessarily, I don't know, a, a wide and diverse cross section of political ideologies. But, yeah. um, but yeah, we're, we're at this weird moment of, of, of exactly what you said of, of reckoning with what it means to be a nation, um, in such a tumultuous time, given our past violences that we've inflicted and, and our, and the current violences we inflict for that matter. And now, as promised, we're going to return for a second look at that climate change sound piece that I mentioned. So I want to start out by addressing the younger people in the room, which is the majority of you younger than me. And what I want to say to you is slightly stark, is this, that your leaders have failed you, your governments have failed you, your parents and their generation have failed you, your teachers have failed you. People are very angry, people are in a rage, people don't want their kids to die. You know, this is a, there's no words to describe how serious it is. We are facing almost certainly um, changes around the world which are going to bring an end to this civilization with extreme uh, prejudice. 
And so we need to think about what comes uh, after it, considering the possibility seriously that that is what will happen, that this civilization will collapse. We fundamentally failed. I mean, I failed, other activists have failed, campaigners have failed, we've all failed. The fact of the matter is, we're facing mass starvation in the next 10 years, social collapse, and the possible extinction of human race. It couldn't be worse. So, well, with, with respect, I don't think the science is saying that we're all going to die within six years. No, 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 no. What we say, what, we, what the science is saying is, if there's not fundamental major change in the structure of the global economy in the next 10 years, then we're heading for catastrophe. So and that, is, that, it, it, that situation has come about over 30 years of failure. Failure by the elites, failure by the governments, and failure by campaigners. So your message is entirely about failure, it's about negativity, it is in a way, I suppose, a howl of rage and despair. That's right, it is. Do you want to bring down the, the capitalist system as we know it? Is, is that the, the capitalist system is going to be brought down by itself. The capitalist system, the global system that we're in, is in the process of destroying itself. Yeah. The reason for that is because it's destroying the climate. The climate is what's necessary to grow food. If you can't grow food, there'll be starvation and social collapse. You're telling me that you're going to take the public with you when a former police chief is suggesting that you actually are anarchists who want to bring down the state and our democratic system. You think the public's ready for that? The public is now aware that the elites are taking them to their death because that's what the science is saying. You, uh, you're carefully manipulating this, aren't you? You said people will see in the evening news ten-year-olds and grannies getting dragged off by the police. When I talk about total collapse, um, that could mean simply... If grannies no turn up there to a meeting are in tears um, about what's happening about, um, to their grandchildren, breeding pairs it's, in not, the it's not what um, I'm doing that makes uh, them sit down on the road. It could it's mean the same complete human with extinction teenagers. And extinction teenagers of, shitting um, themselves about what's happening for the future. They've got another... 50, 60, 70 years to live uh, on this or planet. Could be worse than that. By it that time, be, there could be only uh, a billion the, uh, people left. Of virtually all, I mean, that's um, six billion people Why that could it be as bad as that? from a starvation or being like slaughtered in war. Really and this is the, this is the uh, biggest problem, is the elites um, and the BBC and the conventional uh, media um, has simply no not grasped the enormity of what's happening. Never mind the elites. You're listening, but you're not emotionally connecting. And this is the problem. I've just spent uh, a year doing interviews uh, like this with journalists, and journalists are not Earth. emotionally connecting uh, with what's happening. I am uh, talking about um, is, uh, the slaughter, death and starvation of six uh, billion people. Effect. That's why this Venus century. is a lot hotter That's what the science Mercury, predicts. That's the trajectory the we're on. Uh, and that than, requires absolutely desperate measures to stop it. Uh, is that the if the elites don't respond off, to non-violent uh, action, and that would be the then you know what's going to come next. Possibly even of all life. If you tell the citizens of a country that the government is facilitating their death, then you can expect one thing. And when it comes to this mass participation, you've said thousands on the streets. Do you really believe that with the methodology you've talked about in this interview, the mindset you bring to this, you are going to win the hearts and minds of the public, not just in this country, but publics around the world? I think it's inevitable. I think it's inevitable, yes. I mean, the major question now is, have we left it too late? 
And most scarily of all uh, is the situation... A critical mass of people are starting to realise what's going on, which is the elites and the governments aren't actually going to do anything. They're not going to fulfil their primary responsibility, which is to look after the people. It will happen quickly. This isn't something that builds up gradually. Nothing's happening and then something happens. Bang. Your message is so unrelentingly bleak and negative. It's not a message, right? When you go to the doctor and he tells you you have cancer, that's not a message. It's the science. It's the science. We human beings are making some progress. We are cutting emissions, for example, in the energy sector. I've just told you that's total nonsense. It's total nonsense. You should be for positivity and hope. Hope, that word hope. You see no room for hope. When you go to the doctor, the doctor's got a responsibility to tell you whether you've got cancer or not and whether it's terminal or not. We're talking about turning around the entire super tanker of the world's economy, the entire super tanker of the world's uh, civilization. Daddy, to keep all this in the confines of your own mind. You do not do, you do not do any more black shoe in which I have lived like a foot for 30 years, poor and white, barely daring to breathe or chew. Daddy, I have had to kill you. You died before I had time, marble heavy, a bag full of God, ghastly statue with one grey toe, big as a Frisco seal, and a head in the freakish Atlantic, where it pours bean green over blue in the waters off beautiful Nosset. I used to pray to recover you, ach du, in the German tongue in the Polish town, scraped flat by the roller of wars, wars, wars. But the name of the town is common. My Polak friend says there are a dozen or two. So I never could tell where you put your foot, your root. I never could talk to you. The tongue stuck in my jaw. It's stuck in a barbed wire snare. Eeh, 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 eeh. I could hardly speak. I thought every German was you. And the language obscene, an engine, an engine, chuffing me off like a Jew. A Jew to Dachau, Auschwitz, Belsen. I began to talk like a Jew. I think I may well be a Jew. Our house is on fire. I am here to say our house is on fire. We are less than 12 years away from not being able to undo our mistakes. But Homo sapiens have not yet failed. Yes, we are failing, but there is still time to turn everything around. Now is the time to speak clearly. It's so simple that even a small child can understand it. You say nothing in life is black or white, but that is a lie, a very dangerous lie. Either we choose to go on as a civilization or we don't. That is as black or white as it gets. We must change almost everything in our current societies. Adults keep saying, we owe it to the young people to give them hope. But I don't want your hope. I don't want you to be hopeful. I want you to panic. I want you to feel the fear I feel every day.
and then I want you to act. I want you to act as if you would in a crisis. I want you to act as if the house was on fire, because it is. So, Daddy, I'm finally through. The black telephone's off at the root. The voices just can't run through. If I've killed one man, I've killed two. The vampire who said he was you and drank my blood for a year. Seven years, if you want to know. Daddy, you can lie back now. There's a stake in your fat black heart and the villagers never liked you. They are dancing and stamping on you. They always knew it was you. Daddy, daddy, you bastard, I'm through. I am who I am because somebody loved me. Somebody cared for me. Somebody attended to me. Somebody was concerned about my trajectory in life my pilgrimage. My dear brother Melvin Rogers knows what I'm talking about, that magnificent book on Dewey. That any time you talk about humanity, so that Latin humando, which means burial, we don't need to read Heidegger to be reminded that we're beings toward death. Even death is too abstract. I follow Vico, that we're beings toward extinction of our body. So that brief move from mama's womb to tomb is not long. And the question becomes, what kind of human being are you going to choose to be? What kind of virtues and visions and values will you enact and embody in the short time that you are in space and time, that death sentence in space and time that the great Franz Kafka reminds us of? Nobody gets out alive through the grave in terms of where we're headed, that culinary delight of terrestrial worms. So it's an existential question. We can't use the defense mechanisms of the academy and keep it so abstract and distant and then show how smart we are. I'm highly suspicious of the cult of smartness. Let the phones be smart. We need to be wise. We need to have compassion. We need to be willing to sacrifice for something bigger than us. So I begin on an existential note. You got to do something. You have to make a choice. You got to take a risk. You got to be willing to pay a cost. Tiger, tiger, burning bright. In the forest of the night, what a mortal hand or eye could frame thy fearful symmetry. In what distant deeps or skies burnt the fire of thine eyes? On what wings dare he aspire? What the hand dare seize the fire? And what shoulder and what art Could twist the sinews of thy heart? And when thy heart began to beat, 
What dread hand and what dread feet? What the hammer, what the chain? In what furnace was thy brain? What the anvil, what dread grasp? Dares its deadly terrors clasp? When the stars drew down their spears and watered heaven with their tears, did he smile his work to see? Did he who made the lamb make thee? Tiger, tiger, burning bright in the forest of thy night, what a mortal hand or eye dare frame thy fearful symmetry. Tiger, tiger, burning bright in the forest of the night, what immortal hand or eye could frame thy fearful symmetry? Ba-da-dum. In what distant deeps or skies burnt the fire of thine eyes? On what wing dare he aspire? What the hand dare seize the fire? And what shoulder and what art could twist the sinews of thy heart? And when thy heart began to beat, what dread hand and what dread feet? The Trans Mountain Pipeline has a long and successful history in Canada, from the first discovery of oil in Leduc, Alberta, to the remarkable engineering feat of building the pipeline across the Rockies from northern Alberta to Burnaby, B.C. in 1953. Sixty years later, the Trans Mountain Pipeline is planning to expand to keep up with growing demand. Right now, Canada is losing out on more than $50 million a day in oil revenues. That means a lot of jobs and tax revenues, more than $15 million for federal and provincial government services every day. The proposed Trans Mountain Expansion Project will provide a lasting legacy. Visit transmountain.com to explore local opportunities and see the benefits of our proposed expansion. Earth, magnificent, inspiring, powerful and complex, created more than four billion years ago. It has survived the Ice Ages, the Dinosaur Age, the Iron Age, and for a split second of its existence, the arrival of man and all that he brings. It's hard to comprehend the depth and dynamic nature of Earth's atmosphere. The balance of natural gases that support life on our planet, nitrogen, Oxygen, Argon, Helium, Methane, Neon, Krypton, Carbon Dioxide, and Hydrogen. Over the years, of all the carbon dioxide produced in the world, only 3% of that is man-made, and only 1.3% of that is made in Australia. And for that, the Australian government wants to bring the economy to its knees. Say no to the carbon tax. This message is brought to you by the Galileo Movement. For more information or to support this message, go to Galileo Movement. Please join me in welcoming our Premier, Jason Kenney.
Uh, before we have a chance to hear from the Premier, I just want to say he does not represent me. This is a cesspool of hypocrisy. If you say that you can do... Thank you.